0: Hi everyone and welcome to Brewing the Tea, a podcast hosted by Jaja Zha, Zha Leon, and Tony Liu, where we sit down with Taiwanese and Taiwanese American entrepreneurs and leaders to tell their stories and inspire the next generation. On this episode, we're so excited to have Terry Lin join us here today. Terry is the co-founder and chief design officer of Outer, a next generation DTC outdoor furniture brand. Before starting Outer, Terry was the VP of product at Casper, and director of customer experience at Walmart e commerce. Terry was also the VP of product at Calvin Klein Furniture and the head furniture designer at Pottery Barn. Terry started his career at IDEO and holds a BFA in industrial design from RISD. Today, we'll talk about his design philosophy, his design pet peeves, and how a serendipitous LinkedIn message on his birthday led to the founding of Outer and More. Terry, we're so excited to have you here today on the show. Let's start off by going back to the beginning. Where did you grow up and what were your hobbies and interests when you were young?
1: Sure. I was born and raised in Delaware and I'm first generation. My parents immigrated from Taiwan. They went to undergrad at Tunghai University and then they moved over here for grad school. My upbringing was nondescript when you think of Delaware. It's not like there's a lot of athletics or nature. It was pretty quiet. I grew up in a suburb. The interest that I had was I, I liked tennis, I liked playing piano, and I liked exploring uh, the woods in her backyard. For high school, again, same thing. It was nondescript. There wasn't anything in particular. I don't think I was very popular in school. I, in my school, the, the cool music at the time was like the Grateful Dead. And the music I liked was alternative music. So I liked Depeche Mode and Erasure and like pop music. So that kind of defined me. I was in between. I would never say the cool group, but the alternative group. And then, and then I would say also, let's see, what else? The theatrical group, I would say.
2: Did your Taiwanese background play any role in your, your early childhood, high school years, et
1: cetera? Uh, Yeah, I I would say in Delaware, it was a little bit hard. I did have some cultural identity issues. There weren't that many Asians in my school, at least in my upbringing. It made it a little bit harder. I always wanted to be more normal, and I, I was definitely not that normal. You know, in kind of like this multicultural generation we're in, it's become more normalized. But at least decades ago, it was much more difficult. So kids growing up today that are immigrants, I think, have it easier.
2: Coming to SF was actually a big culture shock for me because there were so many, it was so multicultural.
3: (laughs) Same, yeah. Like when I I went to college and I was like, well, there's a lot of Asians here. And I guess this segues into the next question. What motivated you to go to design school? Did you feel pressured from your family or maybe your extended community to go down a more traditional path?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, I think for many, there is... A, a notion that all Asian parents pressure their kids to go into the science or engineering or health, and um, that actually wasn't the case in my family. I, my parents always let me explore the things that I enjoy doing, and if I was honest, I don't think I was that excited about the traditional academics role. Like math or science or English. And where my talents did lie was in the use of my hands and like my eyes. So where I excelled was in art and design. And my school did have an art design and drafting program. And because of that, I actually I did excel. I've won awards in that. So it just felt like the right path. When we when I was growing up, we would take weekend uh, trips to our, our cabin in the woods in Ocean City, Maryland. And then on those weekends, my dad, we would drive around and we would look at at nice houses. And that got me really interested in architecture. So going from ninth grade to my senior year, I just wanted to be an architect. So, you know, that path never changed. In fact, in my senior year, I designed my first house. So meaning I like designed it, I drafted it up. So yeah, my, my parents didn't have any pressure on what I wanted to do at all. But one thing that was interesting is RISD is a a pretty well-known school and I actually never heard of it. And when I applied to schools, I applied to the schools that you would know, the two that you would know is like Cornell and Syracuse. And I got a, a mailer from RISD and the mailer was a color theory mailer. And it was super interesting. It was basically two colors on a postcard and then a center color. And it said, are these colors the same or different? And it it looked like they were different, but they were in fact the same. And to me, that was so interesting to think that you can make a, a color look like two, you can make two colors look like one, or you can make opaque colors look transparent. And me already being interested in design, that just really impacted me as, oh, wow, that seems like a really cool school. And I started looking into it and I saw its credentials. I was like, I want to go to RISD. Nice.
3: That's awesome. What did you specialize in at RISD?
1: Yeah. So the way RISD works is very different than most undergraduates schools. Before you apply, you actually have to declare your major you're going to go into. And then depending on what you declare, they're going to evaluate you if you are good for it. My junior year, I actually went to Cornell Summer College for architecture. So that's, that really was like, I wanted to be an architect. So I applied to the architecture school. I got into the architecture school And my freshman year was all like thinking I wanted to be in architecture school. And I was never exposed to the, into industrial design. Started looking into it. I thought it was really interesting. And what was most appealing to me about it was that architecture is about the design of buildings and the interaction of people with buildings. Whereas industrial design really is the design of anything. So halfway through my freshman year, I realized Um, That it was something that I was more interested in. My professor said, you should probably look into industrial design. And they said, if you do this, you actually have to reapply. So I was like, oh my gosh, what if I reapply and I don't get into the ID program? But luckily I did get into the ID program. Got it. That's awesome.
2: And as you were in senior year about to end college, did you have a good sense of what you want to do? And then after you graduated, what did you end up doing?
1: Yeah, I would say my my aspirations were very different when I was about to graduate versus when I graduated. So I'm, I'm embarrassed to say, but when I was about to graduate, I was really interested in the Chachki stuff. If you remember there's a brand called Sharper Image, I believe it's still around and they did like cool interesting things but really not a big impact. And I wanted to design cool-looking things. And then as I started looking into like the companies that did that were really prolific with industrial design, it led me to all of the companies um, in the Bay Area that were doing amazing things with industrial design, IDEO being one of them. I set my sights on the Bay Area as soon as I graduated, I moved out. Actually, before I moved out, the summer before, after I graduated, I went to a, a Taiwanese cultural program called Jiantan. Are you familiar with that? It's also called Love Boat.
3: Yeah, I've heard about that one. I didn't even know about it until I was like too old for it. So
1: So after I graduated, I went to Love Boat for the summer. And then right after that, I moved out to San Francisco. And then I started pounding the pavement looking for jobs.
3: Did you enjoy your Love Boat experience?
1: It was actually quite fun. My Mandarin got a lot better. I made some great friends. I Got to really understand the culture and everything that I should be proud of about my upbringing. It's something that I didn't really have exposure to in high school and growing up in Delaware.
3: For sure. Yeah, I've actually never met anyone who's actually went on Love Boat until now. It's been like kind of this mystical thing. (laughs) Is Um, it still happening? I think so. I don't, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's still happening because I remember looking at the application from a few years back and I was like, oh, now I'm too old for this, so I couldn't do it. But uh, I think I'm pretty sure it's still happening.
1: Definitely recommend it then for anyone that's about to graduate. It's a great program yeah. just to understand your roots for the, for the Taiwanese, for sure. or American-born Taiwanese.
3: Yeah, for sure. Why did you decide to work at IDEO in the first place and what was it like working there?
1: Yeah, IDEO was the company that any aspiring industrial designer wanted to work for, including me. And because of that, everyone was applying. So I knew I had a very slim chance of getting... Into IDEO, and my first experience with IDEO was embarrassingly bad. I did get an interview. I was just looking for internships, and I had my RISD College portfolio. I I went into my meeting with a leather bound portfolio and, like, what you would imagine designers would be dressed up as. So, like, black, all black. They started looking at my portfolio, my case studies, and they would look at the first one slowly, and then they would flip the page. And then they would flip a little bit faster. And then within about 10 minutes, my interview was over. And they basically told me, come back when you have relevant experience. So that was right after I graduated. I was feeling really bad about myself. In fact, I was questioning like what I learned at RISD. And it wasn't until I would say... It took me about eight years before I, I worked at IDEO. My first job was an internship at a one-man industrial design shop. I really started developing my design sense, my design philosophy, what I thought was important. And the funny thing is I related it to the karate kid. I know that's a weird analogy, but you think about Ralph Macchio and Pat Morita and how Pat Morita would make him doing, do the wax on and wax off. He n- had no idea what he was doing. But when he actually went into the competition, he actually had learned his skills. And that was a lot of what I realized my education at RISD was about, which was, it wasn't necessarily about the shiny, amazing looking portfolio. It was about the thinking that it taught me and how I solved problems as a designer. And it was until I actually realized that, that I was able to better articulate my value to IDEO and then everything ever since.
2: What, what was experience like working either? Did it meet your expectations? Did you learn a lot? Or, you know, was it somewhat disappointing?
1: Oh, it, I would say like leading up to it, my true education of understanding the real world was everything leading up to that. And if I go back to my first aspirations of really designing cool things, that came to an abrupt halt. At my first job, I was designing a urethral ablating device. And it had the form of a gun. And as I was designing, and I thought I had something slick, I, I showed my manager, and he's like, you're designing this thing all wrong. I was like, what do you mean? Because I was thinking you hold it like a gun where your index finger is where the trigger is. And he's like, no, like the way you hold it is, imagine holding a gun upside down where your pinky finger is the trigger finger. And that was probably an inflection point for me, where I was like, how am I supposed to design things um, that are supposed to solve problems if I don't even know? how and who it's supposed to be designed for and that really got me on this path of understanding the customers and design thinking to me that was the first start of on uh, this path about design is not necessarily about just the styling exercise it's about creating a product and understanding who you're creating it for understanding the problems and then from there breaking those problems down into its component parts and then putting it back together so that the ultimate uh, goal is something that is better than what else is out there. And that is a lot of what IDEO is about. And it's probably shaped everything that I've done ever since. And with IDEO, like many management consulting companies, the the thing that's interesting is you, you have talent horizontally, like management consulting. So you may work in multiple industries, but you don't know a whole lot about one particular thing. But it did teach me about looking at analogous industries and applying ideas from one to another, which actually creates innovation. So I think each phase of my career offered me something that was invaluable to where I am today. And with IDEO, it was really like how to think about a problem, how to solve it, making sure that all the things before you even start design. And then to me, like the I realized at a certain point, As an industrial designer, a big piece is about bringing products to market. And with consulting, whether it be product design consulting, management consulting, what you're good at is understanding how to do the research, how to talk to people, and how to come up with really compelling ideas. And even more so, learning how to create these compelling ideas into these really great presentations. But after that, if, if someone says, great, go and do it, And if it was me, okay, I don't actually know how to manufacture this thing. I don't know if this material exists. I don't know if it can hit the price points. And I realized that consulting brings you to a certain point, but then there's the other half, which is the most valuable part of business, which is being able to bring things to market. So with IDEO, it was really about my foundation for how I think about design and how to solve problems, how to think about the strategy. And then ever since then, it was really about once you actually have that foundation, how do you actually bring something to market?
3: Cool. So after IDEO, you jumped into basically e-com and a lot of furniture design and then eventually into Walmart. So with these opportunities, how did you decide you wanted to do furniture or like, how did you decide with Walmart, you wanted to take a step at like doing pure e-com?
1: Yeah, I think, I think for many, you may be able to path you, your career And for me, I would say I partially path my career. Some of it was just serendipitous, but my career after IDEO, which was really on the, the client side rather than the consulting side was Pottery Barn. And one, I knew that I've always loved all things home, all things home furnishings. So it felt like a good next step. And because I was on the client side, I knew a big piece of what I would learn would be about the merchandise and manufacturing side. I was fortunate to be able to get a job designing furniture at Pottery Barn. In fact, I was the first hard lines designer for Pottery Barn team. And maybe it's because of my credentials at IDO, but I honestly had no experience designing furniture. And the first furniture piece I designed was awful. It was all out of proportion, just looked weird. It almost looked like a Pee Wee Herman chair. If you sat in it, you'd be like, this looks way too big. Over time, I learned how to design and eventually made it to become the head furniture designer at Pottery Barn. And that really taught me a lot about the nuts and bolts of business. Having a great design doesn't mean it's going to be successful. It's all those things that go into a great design from the marketing to the way you're doing the creative to the sourcing, so many things can go wrong to make a product successful or fail. And that was the one thing that I saw, which was the designer does not know best. The designer has one piece of success, but it is really a collective effort that makes it happen. And with Pottery Barn, it was me understanding how to design to price points, how to understand trends, um, looking at historicals to like what worked, to be able to inform what can be done in the future. And then from there, it was the whole sourcing side of understanding capabilities of factories and price points. So that was a really big piece of the start of my career on the the retail side. And ever since then, what I realized, and it's really a 2020 in hindsight, is that my experience leading to where I am today at Outer was from everything that I've done since my days at IDEO. So Pottery Barn, if you think about it, is a specialty lifestyle retailer. They have SKUs in the tens of thousands. If I jump to something like a Walmart e-commerce, they're a mass retailer. And my time at Walmart was very different than my time at Pottery Barn and IDO. I started when I, I started in a group called product development and merchandise innovations. And it really was a Skunkworks team where the mandate was, how do you get to a trillion dollars? If they're a $460 billion company, what are the new white spaces that we can do? What are the new services and the products? And my time there was really taking some of what I, a lot of what I learned at IDEO and applying it. So I worked on things very different than everything that I've done since. So I was working on things like broadband brand connectivity for low-income households. I was working on, at the time... Partnering with uh, one laptop per child, which is an MIT-founded company, on a kid's laptop that was all about creation and exploration, and it taught me a lot about ecom and the nuts and bolts of that—of what makes a company successful, what do you need to do to hit your numbers. But again, it was really about like mass retail versus specialty, and then that kind of jumps me into Casper, which Casper is direct to consumer. So along the way, I learned about all the different ways that uh, retailers work, which informed a lot of what we're doing today at Outer.
2: Which is a great segue to what is Outer, and what is your long-term vision for Outer?
1: Outer is the first DTC brand in a fast-growing category of outdoor furniture. And I know it sounds sleepy, but that's actually where the opportunity is. I'm going to step back for a second. And like, when you think about any category, usually you have a brand recall. And the most popular ones and the easiest are things like cars. You can name multiple car brands. In fact, if I tell you a country, you'd probably be able to name car brands from different countries. I can go into electronics. And in, in the environment we are in today with COVID, I bet you many people would be able to name toilet paper brands, at least three And when I say sleepy category, I say it because when you come to outdoor furniture, most people can't actually name one brand. They're going to be able to name the lifestyle retailers like Pottery Barn and Crate and Barrel, but they're hard pressed to actually name an outdoor furniture company. In fact, they'll say something like Sunbrella. So for us, our our big vision is that we want to be able to create a brand that consumers think of first when they think of outdoor furniture and outdoor lifestyle. And we're doing that by reinventing the product itself, as well as the shopping experience.
0: Speaking of shopping experiences, Outer has created this very unique one called Neighborhood Showrooms, where customers who already have the Outer sofa can open up their backyards to let potential customers visit and check it out before buying it. How did you guys come up with this concept?
1: Yeah. Our neighborhood showroom was, we knew it was critical because when you think of any of the successful consumer direct brands today, they've always done something where they have put a spin on a piece of their business. Oftentimes it may be just a spin. And for us, we knew that there is the product that we are innovating on, but also the retail experience. And I would say that the first thing was, it was ingenuity as well as necessity. For our category, our first product is a, a basically a modular sofa collection. The price point is higher. So with that, we knew that it's risky for many people to buy into a brand that has a high AOV and average order value. So it was important for our category to have a a C-touch and experience component to it. And as we were talking about it, we knew that opening one store was really risky for us. One, because we had limited budget. But two, because when you think about our category, our, our customers are geographically dispersed. And it was a hypothesis that we had before we launched, but I can tell you it's true today. Like we're in all states in the lower 48 right now. And that just goes to show that for what we're doing, there is not one dense area where a store made sense. So the question was, how do we make sure that we're able to offer a C-touch and experience our product to everyone that might be interested? And that kind of got us into this idea of like, how do we actually scale quickly and easily? That was the first part. And then the second part was, it's no surprise that the retail landscape is changing. If you look at it where it was five years ago, compared to where it is today, it's completely different. You think about when Amazon started 20-something years ago and where they are today, they're dominating. You're seeing decades-old generational brands that are going out of business. And it's because of how the shopper is thinking about things. And as we realized that we wanted to do this, this neighborhood children platform, we knew that we had to think about all the things that the customer is thinking about how they shop. So the Neighborhood Showroom is, it's a first of its kind. It's, we've built a physical, a crowdsourced physical showroom platform where we take our customers' backyards and we call them hosts. And what we do is we allow prospective customers to visit these hosts so they can see, touch and feel the product and um, experience firsthand as well as get unfiltered advice from the people that own it. And the way that we think about it is everyone has uh, different requirements for why they uh, are interested in the product. If you live in the, the Pacific Northwest where it's really wet and rainy, how does it perform? If you live in a really humid environment, how does it perform? If you live where there's a lot of snow, if you live in an area where there's extreme heat, how does it perform? And that was a big piece that we knew that with the design of the product, we wanted to be able to speak to the customers the things that they cared about. And the only way we could do that was to use our customers who we wanted to become hosts to be able to talk through it. So that's the overall idea of Neighborhood Showroom. And then going back to the, the things that shaped the Neighborhood Showroom, there were three trends that we saw that we knew that were critical into incorporating into our retail experience. The first is the rise of social media. Social media has now become a starting point for discovery and shopping. If you're looking for anything in fashion, food, or home, or just about anything, where do you start? You probably start in Instagram, maybe Pinterest and Facebook. So that was a critical piece to what we were doing. And we knew that well, like working with influencers and having a lot of user-generated content was really important so people could actually see how other people's backyards are set up. And then that leads to the second most important thing, which is how UGC, user-generated content, has become so important. It, for many, has is the first and last step before you purchased. First step, because when you're looking at something, you're probably going to filter out by reviews. If it doesn't have at least three and a half stars or higher, you're not going to look at it. So that's already whittled down your consideration set. And the last step is that as you're about to buy it, you're gonna read probably the worst reviews as well as all the other reviews, the most helpful reviews. So you go deeper into let's call it long form content. So UGC is such a, a big consideration to help with conversion. And for us, the idea of having hosts be our mouthpieces was important. And one of the, the big things that, that I've thought a lot about is how retail is backwards. And when I say that, and you can read about it, the people ask, who do you trust when you're buying something? And in the, the order that they trust is this they say, I trust friends, families, strangers, brands, and retailers is the last one they trust. They would trust a stranger's review of something more than the retailers. So we knew that, and then going back to, if, if we know that's true, why is UGC at the bottom of the funnel? If you actually wanted to re, uh, read a review, how far, how many clicks do you have to go to read it? You have to go to the homepage and then to the PDP and then scroll down. And then from there, you can click and filter by the different reviews. So a lot of what we've done with Neighborhood Showroom is to turn that upside down and really have reviews, UGC, and social proof be on the top of the funnel so people can actually talk to people that have had it. And then the last insight was the normalizing of the sharing economy. I don't think we would be able to do what we did had Airbnb or or Uber been around where getting into someone's car or um, renting a room or a house would have been unusual, but now it's not. And for us, What we're trying to do is monetize people's backyards. We want them to, it's a safer space. You're not going to their home and a backyard. The infrastructure is there. This idea of normalizing the sharing economy allows us to be able to quickly scale our neighborhood showroom footprint.
2: That's super interesting. And the reasons that you're giving now for why it works make a lot of sense. What was the process of coming up with the idea? Was it this clean or did you randomly assemble this idea and then try it out? And then I guess at what point did you, given that it's the first of its kind, at what point did you realize that this might actually work?
1: Yeah, I would say the idea was a seed from Jake. And as with all things evolve, um, and they evolve for the better, I know he always had said, I want to do something where we have a platform where uh, we use neighbors' backyards as our showrooms. And One of the things that he said that I loved was, and it's something that we say to investors, is we want to be the largest distributed showroom in long-tail markets. And it's something where the major retailers today can't do. They have stores, and with stores, they're over-retailed, they're over-leveraged. For us, we're in people's backyards. And going back to this idea that the infrastructure exists that was where it started and it's just continued to grow. And I think for the the, the better, there's so many additional benefits that we've seen from this. One, we realized that when you think about customer acquisition, everyone is competing using the same distribution channels. The biggest being social media and like Google or paid. And it really comes down to how big is your wallet? So where where these e-commerce companies are born and it's easy to actually start a company. It's really hard to, to actually grow a company. And it's because of that very reason, like to actually acquire customers is very expensive. So we realized as we've done this, that our neighborhood showroom is a distinct channel. No one has it. And as we are doing it for ourselves, it, it actually does drive down our CAC. And we, as we do this, we realized that should we decide that we want to get into the actual physical retail of having a location in a commercial area. This is going to inform us quite a bit based on where people are buying rather than making like risky decisions on, okay, we're going to invest in a a space here. Some other things that has uh, been, and we didn't know this, was that like when you think about the importance of customer service, we didn't think about it, but our hosts are helping us they're answering questions on social that that are there, that prospective customers are putting out there also with with covid one of the things that's been really hard is that when you launch products you need to book photographers you need to book location sets as well as having stylists as well as all that stuff for that one day and it's been really hard to do and because we have a really great network of neighborhood showrooms we've been able to create our own content through actual people's backyards rather than staged. And in doing so for some they their influencers, they have followings. They're seeing what we're doing. So the idea is getting seated. And, and so when we actually launch, there's already demand that's been built in. So there's so many things that we're seeing that are huge benefits to it. And again, it's still early. We're trying to figure out how this puzzle fits into things, knowing that, You know, where we are right now, we've paused neighborhood showroom visits. And we know that our neighborhood showroom um, visits, we pay our hosts $50 for a showing. The showing is about $20. But as we continue to think through what neighborhood showroom means, we're talking about like microtransactions being, well, there's maybe a range. $50 is something that you do when you have someone visit your space. But what if you answer an email? What if you post something? What if you call someone? What is the value to customers? And a lot of this has to do with, not only are we rethinking retail, but we realize with our customers, many of these people don't need the money. They're, they have high household incomes. And the last thing we want to do is, let's say they are directors of this or that. They don't want a title of sales associate. So we're thinking the, what this means. And that idea of sales associate is no longer.
3: I guess jumping to something a little different here. How do you think your design background has influenced the way you operate as a tech founder and leader today at Outer?
1: Yeah, I think my training in my early days, one, has made me really humble. Where I used to put high value on how things looked. So how things looked, press with something looking slick, that is not as important to me. It really comes down to what is the problem you solved? Like the beauty of a product is understanding that piece. And everything that I do today was because of that. And I would say a lot of the, my time at IDEO also shaped that perspective. And it, it's just the way I solve problems. It always goes back to why are we doing this thing? Just an example, when, when Jake first reached out to me, And he told me like, hey, I'm interested in doing an idea of, and he says, the DTC for outdoor furniture. First question I asked is, okay, if we do this, it can't be something where we're designing like just another me too product. If we do this, it's because we're solving a problem. And we talked for a couple of weeks before really moving forward. But if I fast forward to where we are today. And our success, the thing that people recognize or we are recognized for, we have something called the outer shell, which is patent pending. And it's basically an integrated cover that allows uh, a customer to quickly protect and keep your cushions dry or transport it somewhere when, you're, when it's not in use. And the reason we designed it was before we designed, we asked people that owned outdoor furniture, how often do you use outdoor furniture? your outdoor furniture. And the answers we got were, oh, I use it on the weekends or I use it a few times a month. And then the next question was, why is that? Why do you only use it so infrequently? And they would say, well, look at my furniture. And it would be really dirty. It would be stained. It'd be wet. There'd be bird poop on it. And it came down to, if they wanted to use it, they actually had to, to do a side project to clean it and let it dry so they could use it. So that was the first reason they didn't. The second was, it was covered with a rain cover and for for any people that have owned an outdoor grill or even outdoor furniture it is not easy to take on or put a rain cover on so that was also a friction point so we realized there was a huge opportunity with making protection simple and that was how the outer shell was born and it's it exi- it's the only one that exists today and even though it's a problem that is hiding in plain sight No one's designed anything like it. And that just goes back to the idea of like really having customer empathy and figuring out a real problem that you're trying to solve. As we come up with new ideas, as we're working on our customer experience, it always goes back to what is it that we're trying to solve?
2: Totally makes sense. And you know, you've mentioned Jake a couple of times now, who's your co-founder. How did you meet and what was your relationship like leading up to starting Outer?
1: Yeah, that's probably one of the best stories ever. Jake and I, different generations, different locations. I'm here in San Francisco and he lives down in LA. I am more than 10 years older than him. And then if you looked at our LinkedIn before we knew each other, there was no, there was zero degrees of separation, or sorry, there's, I don't know how many degrees of separation, but we basically had no one in common. And the only reason we met was, uh, one, he is a serial entrepreneur. This is his second company. And the way it started was he went and visited his cousins in China who own an outdoor furniture factory. And he realized there was a huge opportunity. And over the course of, I think, at least six months, he was thinking of this idea. And when it got a little bit more firm, firmed up, he, he signed up for LinkedIn Premium. And he just wanted to reach out, out to people Um, that were executives at Casper. And he, you know, when he reached out, it was a a really thoughtful message that had all the right keywords. Uh, And I thought about like everything I've done in the past from design to DTC, it just hit all the things. And I think many of us get LinkedIn messages that we just uh, don't respond to or ignore or delete. But he just had something that was, it just piqued my interest. He sent it and I know the day it was, June 30th of 2017, 11 minutes after he sent his message, I responded. And that was how our relationship started. The next day, I I know that day because June 30th is my birthday. So it will forever be burned in my head when I met Jake. We talked the next day. And then over the next three weeks, we kept talking. And then at a certain point, we had our first date. He flew up to San Francisco. We spent the day together. We kept on talking about the idea and it took a little while for us to come together, but in the end we aligned on the values and what we did. And it's just been like an amazing growth and success ever since.
3: Love the story. It's pretty, it's a pretty serendipitous story. <laughs> I love that story. Thank you. I was um, going to say, it's,
1: a- it's
2: awesome. <laughs> it's a really great story. And I love that cold emails, you know, can work very well. <laughs> So I'm curious, what are some of the DTC companies that you aspire to and what do you think it takes for a new brand to stand out from all the other ones that exist and take off?
1: I don't know if I would, if, if it's okay, I would not say DTC, but from the start, the company that we've always aspired to be like, and like when, When we're making decisions, we'll ask the same thing, but it's Patagonia. Patagonia is the company that we're modeling ourselves after. If you think about everything that they've done from designing products that they're not actually doing anything for planned obsolescence, they're doing things where they're able to make an impact to the broader initiatives that are happening in the world. I would say Patagonia is the company. Yvonne Chouinard is the founder, and I would say he is like my role model of everything that I hope we're able to do for Outer.
3: Do you have any favorite designers?
1: <laughs> Let's start with um, Yvon Schuernard. And I know it probably doesn't work as well because he's not a designer. He is the founder. But uh, I say that because, one, he never set out to be a, a businessman. He was a-, a climber. He was a falconer. He was a blacksmith. He's a surfer. And now he's an entrepreneur and a businessman. And when I say design, it's because a lot of the things that have shaped Patagonia is because of what's important to him. Premium quality products that are responsibly made. He thinks about the materials and the supply chain commitment so that they can invest in things that matter. And again, I say design because at some point I remember reading that he said, if we can't actually do something with organic cotton, I don't want to start this company just like his values are so important that it, it supersedes everything else. So it's really not about the money for him. It's really about the vision of what he wants, the brand that he's building to be. So I don't know if that is a great example of a, a designer. I do have another one and it's old Kirk Christensen, which uh, I'm sure many of you have never heard of, but everyone would know. He's the inventor of Lego. And what I love about Legos is the mass appeal of Legos. It spans generations. It bridges gender gaps, race gaps. I played with them when I was little. I played with my daughter. In fact, in COVID, we've been making a lot of Lego Star Wars models. You see everything from prolific designers. I think, I don't remember his name, but there's a designer that made a Lego that was like a yellow um, bust of someone and then basically the chest was split open and all these yellow Legos were coming up, you know, I Weiwei did an, an ex- exhibition with Legos. So you have everything from like a prolific designer to children that are playing with it. So this idea of mass appeal and timelessness and flexibility, you think about all the things you can do with Lego. And I think the great thing when you mentioned some of your favorite designers are that one Yvon Schuernard is not a designer um, per se. Old Kirk Christensen is also not a designer. I think he was a, like a craftsman. So f- for him to be able to do this thing that is now, I don't even know how long, I think it's been at least 60 years that they've been around. I think the things that I most respect um, about design is you don't actually have to be a designer to create great design. And to me, like the mark of great design has to do with like longevity and mass appeal.
3: How do you think, as consumer expectations have been rising today with e-commerce and social media, what are some challenges that physical product designers like you um, and your industry face that has just changed over the years?
1: Oh, it's changed considerably. When I was in school, industrial design was truly about designing exterior ge- geometries, making things look cool, making them look pretty. And then uh, I, I do think there's still a place in the world for that. And it's really about certain categories. Where it's less important is something like consumer electronics. Think about a smartphone. If, if you lined up a bunch of smartphones um, in front of you, they all look the same. They're black rectangles. And the thing that will make someone buy or not buy has to do with the, the actual user interface, the interaction that you have with it. And with industrial design, I do think that it's changing quite a bit. Like I I feel like pretty objects are still important, but for the industry, and it's not that I've been following what a curriculum looks like, but it does come down to like, what are they doing to be able to solve problems? And those problems are like, the the things that you do are going to be timeless things that you're able to have throughout your career. And then it just comes down to the tools you use. So whether the tool be 3D modeling, whether it be something like SketchUp, that is the thing that is the most important thing. As an industrial designer, it's really almost like with any any career path that you take, we all have different unique perspectives of how we we view the world and our approach to solving problems. And I know with, with me, the way I solve problems really is from like an industrial design perspective. But I do think like it does need to change, and I do believe it is changing. The tools that used to be core to your toolbox are changing.
2: On a related note, I guess talking about changes in the you know, circumstances that we're in the pandemic right now, you've touched on how it's affected outer in some ways. For example, you've paused neighborhood showrooms. But I imagine there are some like tailwinds as well, people are at home wanting to be outside in their houses. So how has this all affected the way you think about your business today?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And the second week of March of this year was a really scary time for the entire world. The one we knew was happening with a pandemic. And then here in San Francisco, they announced that they were going to shut down the schools and your kids were going to be home for just three weeks at the time. And then right after that, like the, over the weekend, I was like, okay, that's what's going to happen. And then I just said, everyone is going to be sheltering in place. And if you think about all of that, prior to that, everyone is doing their planning for the year for forecasts and sales. And we're like, okay, this was not expected. What's going to happen? And we freaked out like the first few days, like we had a really strong Q1. We kept on um, beating our, our monthly forecast. And then March came. And that week when they made all those announcements, sales went really quiet for two or three days. Like where we, we had like a predictable run rate, that run rate stopped. And we're like, what are we going to do? And then what happens was one week later, sales started picking up and it kept on picking up. And within a certain period, we realized that, whoa, we um, actually under forecast what our sales are going to be and we need to scramble. We had to triple our staff at the, at our factory to try to meet demand. And it's just been an amazing year. And for a good reason, one, you realize that the first thing, because there's nowhere safe to go, parks are shut down. So if you do have kids, the only safe place to be is in your backyard. Two, I know for us, we had as many spring break plans that got canceled. So you had this discretionary income that um, you didn't know what to do with. And uh, that's just shown in, you look at the strength of mass retailers, you look at Home Depot and what a tear they are with, with their stock. So everything that had to do with the outdoors seemed to be really a tailwind. If you look at Google search trends and you see how much more, how much higher the search volume is this year versus last year. So we've been really lucky to be on the right side of the pandemic. And then I do think, are we going to have a period where it's going to actually go away? And I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon.
2: makes sense. Definitely for, for outer silver lining of the pandemic. And I, I guess, Josh, if it sounds good, you can switch gears. Maybe f- some fun questions. Uh, I mean, to get things started, my, my yeah. first question is, what's your biggest design pet peeve?
1: My biggest design pet peeve, let's see. I think my biggest design pet peeve is when you design something that is provocative. And what, what that means is you design something and it looks really cool, but it doesn't function cool. Okay. And like, I'm just going to pick on furniture just because that's, that's the space that I'm in. There's really cool designs of things. And I think there's one years ago where someone designed a, a chest of drawers and it was just a bunch of drawers and it had, and it was like strapped together. It was like a bunch of drawers that were made in boxes strapped together. And it's, that's interesting looking, but who would actually do this? So I think a lot of the way I think about things are function first before aesthetics.
2: And, Unrelated question. What's your favorite piece of furniture and what's your least favorite piece that you've
1: seen? I'm actually very proud of our outer sofa that that I designed. It took us a year to design it. So I have an 86 page PowerPoint document of every single thing. So there's 26 components to it. And I think the reason I'm proud of it is because I actually went and scrutinized every single piece of it to choose why it's important, where it might be boring for people, but I get jazzed when I know that I designed this screw and the screw length was this because it only takes 14.6 seconds to put on versus what we had originally, which was like 25.4. Then your next question was, what is my least favorite piece of furniture? I don't know if I have a least favorite piece of furniture.
2: I guess I'll change my question. That, That makes sense, but what's your favorite piece of furniture? excluding the one that you designed
1: (laughs) my favorite piece of furniture i would say my favorite piece of furniture is i have a chair it's called a talix chair and uh, the talix chair is uh, a french design they're called cafe chairs too so you'll see them all over the place What I like about it is the way they're able to use sheet metal and transform it into something, into this iconic design that if you saw it, you would know exactly what it looks like. And going back to this trend of like timelessness where it spans, it spans time, right? Like it's relevant now, it was relevant when it was designed 50 years ago, and it'll be relevant when it's designed 50 years from now. It's durable as hell. It's like, that's one thing. I have a bunch of them in my house. And it's, as my tastes change, I know that it will always be able to be relevant to me.
2: I just looked it up and indeed have seen it, (laughs) recognize it immediately. It's it's
1: a famous chair, yeah.
2: It's spelled T-O-L-I-X.
1: T-O-L-I-X, yes. They come in all kinds of colors. Like they have the traditional color where it's just coated with a gloss. There's just so many ways that you can style. It It could be modern, it could be classic so that's what I'm saying. It's like a chameleon; it goes everywhere.
3: Yeah, it's also for just very simple looking. It's like very clean. Yeah, no frills. I think we can go to the last few fun questions. Yeah. Do you have a favorite tea?
1: I do. I do. My favorite tea, actually, I think it would be two. I would say the number one is the the Dragon Pearl Jasmine tea from Tenren. My grandmother drank jasmine tea and oolong tea all the time. So those are the two that remind me of home and my childhood and being able to, my interactions with my grandma, my ama. <laughs> nice.
3: Yeah. Favorite Taiwanese food?
1: Favorite Taiwanese food. Is it okay if I name more than one?
3: Yeah, of course. Go over it.
1: Okay. Okay. So I'll give you the most generic one that I think everyone knows, which is Din Tai feng. Uh, their shaolong baos are amazing. Every time I've gone to Seattle or Hong Kong, like that would be, I'd do a beeline to Din Tai Fung for their shaolong balls, and then their smashed cucumbers. Let's see what else. More unusual, and then oh, nyo Rong Mian, beef stew noodles in Taiwan. There's a place that we went last November called Champion Beef. That was amazing. Let's see more unusual things that I've tried that have been very memorable and i'm excited to do and maybe i'll even try to make it is something called hwasin rinping do you know what that is by any chance have you heard of that
3: is it the spring roll with Uh, the peanut peanuts peanut brittle yes yes yeah yeah i've had it recently
1: oh what did you think of it
3: that was pretty good yeah i had like a night market or something yeah
1: yeah, it was a, it's at the Rahe Night Market. The Huasin runping is basically, if, if you had to describe it here, it's basically an ice cream burrito, which sounds completely odd. It's basically like a flour crepe that they put ice cream into, and then they shave that, the peanut brittle on. And I know when we saw it, we were with friends, and, oh, you got to try this. And so it's all those things which sound kind of normal. And then the topping that was unusual was cilantro. So when you think of like desserts, the last thing you think of is cilantro. So it's ice cream wrapped in a flour burrito with peanut shavings and then cilantro. And while you think that combination is weird, it is really good. So those are probably like when I think of Taiwanese food or when I've been in Taiwan, those are the things that were the most, I went there in November for really a food adventure.
3: Nice. All very good picks. And (laughs) I guess the last question we just have here is favorite things to do.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. Since we've been talking about food, we went to Taiwan like for Thanksgiving last year, and it was just to go visit the night markets. If you are visiting Taiwan, that is the thing to do. I think a more, another thing that I thought is an interesting cultural experience is, I know this sounds odd, but go and experience a 7-Eleven in Taiwan. And that sounds really boring. I know. But I say that because of the contrast of culture between a 7-Eleven here in the States compared to a 7-Eleven there. It's a very different experience. And then I think the last, which is fun because I have kids, is go visit the Taipei Zoo and check out the pandas. I've never seen pandas in real life and it was the first time I was able to do.
3: Yeah, I've been to that zoo before. I, I went when I was like a kid and the pandas had first gotten here. So it was like a big deal. And I also remember going there when the Emperor Penguins first got here and that was also like a pretty big deal. Yeah. But yeah, that was a good memories. Cool. I think that's all the questions we have. It was fantastic. Thanks so much. I like the the stories. You have a lot to talk about with your very cool, unique design background, like physical goods design. And always been a fan of you and Jake. Thanks so much for your time today.
1: Thank you. This has been a really fun interview being able to talk other things other than outer